church right now, and it's very important for all of us to be together in what God is accomplishing and maybe what God's leading us into as a local church. So I know this title sounds like it should be a joke. Hey, what has three legs and six feet? Um, that's kind of the title of the message, Three Legs and Six Feet. And over the next few weeks, you're going to discover what has three legs and six feet. This morning, you're going to discover the three legs part of that message. But Lakeview Christian Center has three legs and six feet. Uh, it has more feet than that, but we're going to talk about six particular feet next week. But this week, we're going to talk about three legs. If I were to ask you guys a question about your involvement in the church, and I, I know that we know many folks for a long time, and some folks we're getting to know, and maybe today you're just visiting or have only been in the church a couple of times. But we live in a society that church is not a foreign event. Church is somewhere in people's lives. It may have been historic. It may have been traditional. It may have been a part of their family. They've got some background when it comes to being involved in the church. I guess I could say there's some style about how people get involved in church. And you've got some kind of a style. And you, you've come to this church or you've been involved in other churches throughout your life. And, and whether you are coming through particular steps of religious traditions, you were raised a certain way, you attended church a certain way, church took up a certain place in your background and so you just have continued that. Or maybe you've had this encounter with God that's totally changed the way in which you relate to this thing called church. Uh, I, I find people with different personalities relate to the church differently, right? Some people are people people. They just, they just draw energy from gatherings. They love to be around others. Some people, that's, a, that's an awkward setting. So, you know, they, they sort of attend. They, they may sit in certain locations, avoid certain other types of meetings. Uh, I find people with different levels of money in their life have different styles about how they participate in the church, you know, people with less money participate one way. People with kind of that middle class thing going on, got a level of interest. People with a lot of money, wealth and interest in a variety of categories. Their involvement with the church is different from person to person. But how do we, how do we assimilate these variety of styles that might be among us with what God had in mind when he created this thing called the church? There's a couple of articles that I came across and studying this week. One was by a guy named Bob Crossman. He says this. He says, has your offering plate been emptier this year? If your church is typical, the offering in 2011 was smaller than in 2010. Giving to religious organizations is estimated to have declined 4.7% from 2010. Why? It's not simply due to a downturn in the national economy. The Giving USA 2012 report by Bill Enright points to several larger issues. He suggests the five issues that have affected local church giving include, and I don't want to go through all five, but just a couple of thoughts here. One, a decline in both church attendance and formal institutional membership. Right? So there is a declining trend in the world of the church in people attending church on a regular basis and meaningful, formal membership where people not only just feel like, hey, yeah, that church, whether I'm there or not, you know, it, it goes on. 
and people who are members who feel like, hey, my participation matters in the church. And so I have a level of expectation about myself and my participating in the church. Well, those things are shifting in our day. Number two, generational shifts in religious practice, participation, and styles of giving. That's an interesting phrase. Styles. Did you know you can have a different style of giving? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Churches with a high level of vitality are rare. In the typical congregation, it seems that only a small portion of the congregation is actively engaged and striving to become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. So typically you would have churches throwing around numbers that uh, 80% of the activity of the church is being driven by 20% of the church. And, and in many settings, that's, that's a true event. And that reflects the style of involvement of people in the life of the church. This thought from Jeffrey McDonald out of the Winston-Salem Journal, he says, booming megachurches might grab headlines, but the bigger story of American congregations is one of accelerating decline, according to David T. Olson, the director of American Church Research Project. Based on data collected from more than 200,000 churches, he projects that by 2050, only 10% of Americans will be in church on any given Sunday. All right, listen, when you find statistics like this, they're all over the place. All right, so they give you a general idea that there's not a huge number of people participating. They don't give you an accurate, accurate basis. But he's basing that off of right now numbers that would reflect about a 17 to 20% of the American population is in church on any given Sunday morning. Question. Why is church attendance such a critical factor to measure? Right? Why does that really matter to your Christian life? Answer. Part of following Jesus is being connected in an authentic, consistent way with a group of Christians so that it's not just an individualistic act. That's, that's a very important line right there. Because we live in a society where the air that we breathe is so individualistic. It is so much about what's right for me, how does this benefit me, and, and, and me being the individual me, not, not the corporate me. And, and yet when the Bible speaks, the Bible speaks so much more corporately than it does individually. When you're reading passages, I know we're all, we're all tempted to substitute our name in the passages, and, and there's, there's a place where we should do that, and it becomes personally meaningful to us. But most of the context where you hear anything from the Bible it's a group context. It's people amidst people. It's people connected to people. So that's a great line, a good question for any of us here this morning is are you connected in an authentic, consistent way, connected to others in an authentic? It makes a difference. If it's not, I'm going to say this today in our busy world, if it's not inconvenient, it's not authentic. How's that? People are inconvenient. I mean, come on, be real. Caring for people, being involved in their lives, their time schedules, your time schedules, your needs, their needs, their activity, the pace of something important, your activity, pace of something important for you. Right? So if we're really authentically involved in others, taking up their lives, then, then it's just it's going to bump into the convenience levels of our lives. And we're doing it in a consistent way. He goes on and says, so when I see that percentage going down, it lets me know that the number of people following Jesus in that way is diminishing in America. 
And it's a very interesting language. You've got, in one article, you've got different ways of following Jesus. In another article, you've got styles of giving. Now, that's a, that's a reflection of the multitudes, right? So when you turn your analysis Turn your microscope to the multitudes, you find a variety of ways and different styles of giving. Different ways to follow Jesus. Maybe you follow Jesus your way, and you follow Jesus your way, and you follow Jesus your way. And then there's styles of giving, and you've got one style, and, and that's got one style, and this one's got one style. But when I, when I come to the Bible, do I, do I find the church being presented to the world as though, hey, the church is going to have different styles and different types of involvement Depending on who the individual is. Do I find that in the Bible? Well, one helpful passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. The Apostle Paul's writing. The church is getting established upon the earth. And he writes to Timothy, he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I am writing so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So there's this this massive responsibility given to this thing called the church. You are the pillar and support of the truth. You, You are holding up that which is absolutely sure for humanity. You are the pillar and support of the truth. A lot of things are shifting. A lot of things are changing. We live in a pluralized society where there's a lot of ideas that are welcomed. So there's lots of things that you and I look at life, and who knows what's in the future? Who knows what's best for man? God comes along and says, but there's this, there's this one thing that I'm putting upon the earth that's going to be the pillar and support of the truth. The realities that don't change. The things that define human existence and your future. And I'm, I'm placing that on the church. The church will be the repository of the truth being expressed into the earth. That, that's a pretty important assignment now. With that important assignment, the Apostle Paul steps in behind that and says, I'm writing these things to you. In case I can't come say these things to you in person. I'm writing them to you so that one will know how he ought to conduct himself in the church. So when I hear the Bible presenting ought to, it doesn't sound like it's leaving this thing up to grabs for personal styles and preferences. Well, I'm not really a people person, so... Well, you know, I got a lot going on. You understand, Keith, I own three companies. I mean, it's just a lot happening. So my involvement in the church is this way versus the guy. I mean, that guy over there, he's, you know, he's got a job. He works 35 hours a week. Of course he can be involved. But the, the Bible doesn't seem to be leaving this up to personal stylistic preferences. It's saying that the church sits in people's lives, whether... Whether you're a young, techno-savvy person who's got, you know, your life is full and, and you've got the latest stuff happening in your life or you're some middle-aged professional or you're some older traditionalist, the same Bible is jumping into your life and saying, hey, there's this thing called the church. It's holding up the truth in the world. And I'm writing these things to you so that you'll know how you ought to conduct yourself in this thing called the church. Here would be my conviction. I don't think I wrote this out in your outline, but I'll read it to you carefully. It's my conviction that the church 
as a gathered group of people in fellowship with each other under the oversight of biblical leadership embracing the mission to make disciples ought to, the church ought to, occupy one of the most prominent places and priorities in the life of any and every Christian. It should not be a hobby. It should not be an add-on. It should not be an optional category in our lives, but should play a central and prominent role in our lives. And listen, you, you, you don't get born into the world with that. You learn that. You learn that as you get around God and you find out what God's doing, you find out where God's doing it. And you find the address for it is in the church. You and I come into the world, we get exposed, you know, we come into an individual life and then we have a context of a family. So we, we kind of have us and family. We've got a category for us and family. And if you grew up traditionally where your family was associated with the church, you've got a category for the church. But depending on how that was led in your life, that category may be an optional category that, that takes second and third place to many, many, many events and activities going on in your life. And so we, we come to the Bible and find out in the Bible the church plays a critical, vital role in the world, in the economy of God. And whatever it is that God wants to do next, God's next move is not to abandon the church and do it apart from the church. When you read the Bible, you don't find any kind of a plan in the Bible like that. God's next move is going to be through his church, whatever that next move is going to be. And so we have a part in that. Each one of us plays a part in that. So where I want to go with just the next two weeks of introducing something and, and then after that letting you hear from some other guys is, is to address some very critical aspects of, of being the church. Three legs that the church stands on. Six feet. And these six feet are going to be three men here in our midst that God is calling to give leadership to some very important activity in the future of the church. Right, we're gonna, you're going to hear from Jeff. Jeff's going to talk about church planting and our mission to plant a church on the North Shore. You're going to hear from Jason. Jason's going to share about our vision and mission to have an influence and impact upon a generation that's just moved out of the high school realm and into young adulthood under their 30s and facing a, a crossfire of activity, hostility, Ideas being formed in their hearts and in their lives. Plans being made. Foundations being laid for the rest of their lives. And you're going to hear from Evan as he shares with you a vision for youth ministry. And being a church, being families, being teenagers. And how God has a mission for life for those folks. So those six feet are going to find their way up here in the next few weeks. Those six feet are going to lead us into the future. And next week, I want, to, I want to share with them here with us in a sobering way the calling that God is placing upon their lives. And then I want to share with us the mandate that sits on us to partner with them, to, to engage with them what God is setting in our future as a local church. 
Because God wants to do something that's related to the truth being supported in this world through this church in these particular categories, specifically in, in the days to come. Let me start today with three legs, three legs that we're going to build by standing things on these three legs. I, I think it'd be safe to say um, when you read the Bible, remember if you wanted to figure out where does God place the priorities, you'd have to read this. You can't figure out, do not do this. Too many people do this. It's this individualistic American approach to things. We try and figure out where to put the emphasis based on where we put the emphasis. Right? I, I mean, I got a certain style about me, and you do too. I've got a certain personality about me. I'm drawn to certain things, and I could give a rip about other things. And so if, if left up to me... I would emphasize certain stuff by nature and neglect certain stuff by nature, right? I mean, I just introduced you to the first problem in marriage counseling. That's, what's, that's the problem between you and your wife, isn't it? Your wife sees these things. These are the important things. Why don't you notice these? Why isn't that second nature to you? And you're staring over here going, well, because these are the important things. These make sense to me. This is where I go when I take my hands off the steering wheel. But if I want to find out where God puts the emphasis, I'm going to have to open his word and find out what does God talk a lot about in here? What does God make a big deal out of in here over and over and over again? Right? If you're honest with the Bible, you're going to find the Bible says a little bit about a lot of things. Sometimes those are our favorite things. Right? We pick a little bit category. I'm going to take one of these little things and blow it up and, you know, it needs to be the first church of whatever because it needs to be about that little thing. We see, we see this little thing in the Bible and it's, it's become central to everything that we're about as a, as a family, as an individual. Okay, be careful. The Bible says a little bit about a lot of things. It says a lot about a little number of things. If we're going to be a church that's being led biblically, then we need to make sure our categories of what are the, what are the big categories where the Bible says a lot about those things. Well, I, I, I'm going to put them under three headings, three umbrellas. The Bible says a lot about God. The Bible says a lot about the gospel. And the Bible says a lot about going. So God, gospel, go. Right? If that was to be our church gathers on the line here and we all stand to run the Christian race, it would be, wouldn't be ready, set, go. It would be God, gospel, go. That would be what the lifestyle of the Christian would look like. And I, I kind of hung these map looking things here. Your page isn't wide enough to put them all the way across left and right. I'm not, I'm not trying to highlight one over the other here, and I'll show you why in just a second. But when I say God, I'm talking about the person of God. I'm talking about the character and glory of God. God in himself having this desire to put on display who he was. And who he is. That's, that's a key, critical, vital element. God is the ultimate alpha and omega. It is God who is the beginning and the end. You and I get clued in as to why anything exists by finding out where it came from and the one who designed it had a certain personality and certain intentions involved. That's going to be very defining for us. So God matters. God is the center of all things. The reason why you and I exist on a daily basis has everything to do with who God is and what his plan was. So you cannot escape being God-centered. I'll, I'll unpack that a little further. The gospel, the redemptive story begins immediately in the Bible. 
you get a brief introduction as to how things got started, and immediately the wheels come off, and the rest of the Bible is about restoring fallen man. So, you know, don't ever pick the Bible up and think it's a bunch of cool proverbs. It's, you know, it's, it's right up there with, I think, Jeff, where somebody was mentioned a few weeks ago, you know, God helps those who help themselves, and a bunch of other cool phrases that aren't even in the Bible. We love these little ideas and concepts that just kind of sound like that's, that's, a, that's a good motto to have as a human being. You've got to live our life by that. And we grab it from the Bible. You know, the Bible is an unfolding redemptive story. Every place, every page, it's telling the story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. So, so be careful that you never assume that this verse is just there for me to make use of with some uh, help plant grass where there's no grass project. Okay, um, this is not a grass planting book, you know. This, this is not an environmental cause book or whatever else is our favorite thing. This is a story of redemption. It is the gospel. So the church can never be not gospel-centered. Now, the gospel has facets to it that you're going to hear in a variety of ways as you move through Scripture character of God and the fallenness of man. You don't escape that. The gospel is based upon those two realities. The character of God, the fallenness of man. The saving message, how it is that you and I ever get right in our life is based in the gospel. The character of God that produces the gospel by grace and continues to operate in our lives once we've been saved by the gospel by Grace informs everything about our lives. So if you're lost, the gospel's informing your life. If you're saved, the gospel's informing your life. Because it's based in the first G-O that we just looked at, God. Gospel's based in God. And the last one is go. You pick up any page of the Bible, you're going to find people on a mission. The Bible has a lot to say about going. It occupies our lives. There's an aspect of outreach that should inform everything that we do and how we live. The sanctification, the life of the church, the growth of the church, the individual believers growing in maturity is is about going into the world and having an impact when we go, the manner of life in which we live. So let me me stand our three legs up because we're going to build on these three legs and it's important that Anytime, anytime you're sitting in a service, anytime you hear us open the Bible, if you're in a church plant, you're in uh, pivot ministry, you're in youth ministry, you're sitting in a service, no matter where you are, if you're opening a passage, these three elements are there. To varying degrees, they're in that passage that we're looking at. All right, so let me, I'm going to walk through each of these pretty quickly. God-centered. The church the Christian, any ministry is mandated with being God-centered. If you ever lose sight of this, you will distort everything about the Christian life. Before any of us, God is God-centered. And God certainly has a care, and part of God being God-centered has a an impact on who we are. It has a caring component for our lives. But you cannot start with caring for us. You have to start with God being God-centered. Like, look at verses like this, and they're all throughout the Bible. Hebrews 2 verse 10. He for whom and by whom all things exist. All things exist, why? For him. 
1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Isaiah 43, verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Do you understand? When we start saying the people whom I formed, from the individual that God created to the people that he has gathered together uniquely in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the New Testament, the church, has a purpose behind it. Listen, you and I are gathered into this building. We may not be here this morning for the same reason God has us here this morning, right? Couldn't that be right? I could be here this morning because uh, I'm just lonely. Would that be bad for me to seek out to be around people because I'm lonely? No, it wouldn't be bad. It just wouldn't be primary. You do things in your life for a bunch of good reasons. It would be a good reason for you to seek out companionship. That wouldn't be a bad thing. But it needs to be underneath something that's bigger than that. And for whatever reason you and I could say we want to be a part of a church, God has gathered a people for this reason, that they might declare my praise, that their life might broadcast and proclaim. You never get away from this. We studied this in 1 Peter and went through it over and over and over again. My kids think this is my favorite verse now because we talked about it so much in 1 Peter. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you might, what, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Right? So we know that we're the people of God. We know that we're the church, but do we know why we're the church? In order to proclaim God. Right? That's, our, that's our first primary ruling and overruling calling. All things exist for him. Now, li- listen. If I could, you know, Step my foot into the real world for a moment. The, the church gets in some, some crosshairs with people and with culture because the culture tends to hijack so much that God created for him and reestablish it for reasons that are for man. And then, and then this group of called man begins to drift. And, you know, if it's Puritan man, lifestyle is a certain way. If it's California man, lifestyle is a different way. If it's 2012, man, man is yet again different. And so he's hijacked man, and now he's looking back to God, and he's saying, hey, God, we want to reinvent everything that you created. But all things were created and exist for who? For him. All things created and exist for him. And so, you know, you watch the news. I preached about this a couple of weeks ago. There is a massive debate taking place in our country and in different parts of the world over the issue of gay marriage. It's a massive debate. The debate is formulated out of somebody. You know, if I'm an attorney here and I'm arguing for the parties involved, I stand in the 
gay community and I represent the interest of these individuals who, you know, in an American worldview says every individual has the right to pursue happiness and they have the right to pursue it in the way in which it makes sense to them to pursue it as long as they don't hurt others in the process. So I'm the attorney. I'm going to fight for this group should have the right to pursue happiness the way in which they want to pursue happiness. And, and you people don't have the right to take that away from them. And in our society, that is kind of how we view things, and it is how we handle things, and that kind of makes sense. But what if I'm the attorney for God? What if I take up God, right? What if, you know, the witness has rights? What if God has rights? And, and I invite God's rights into this discussion, and I go back to the original text, the original documents that define where did any of this stuff come from? Where do we come from? Where does life on planet earth come from? Well, it comes from God. Well, what did God have in mind when he created? Well, he created all things for himself so that they might proclaim his character, his glory upon the earth. So all things were created by God for God to proclaim his praise and his glory. And you start picking those things up. You say, okay, why was this thing down here created? What was created by God for him, for his glory? What about this thing right here? By God, for him, for his glory. And I have to make an argument for the creator, the originator of everything in this world, has rights. He has rights in this debate. When we stand and fight for the rights of the individual... Are we alienating the rights of God? Does not God have the right over marriage, the thing that he created, to say what it is and what it is not? Does God not have the right? Listen, in this argument, it seems unacceptable that someone would overlook the individual's rights. It's unacceptable. Can I, can I just take that principle? It is unacceptable, inhumane, unloving, and uncaring to overlook rights. Now, what if I just apply that to God? It is that for God's creation to do that as well. As a matter of fact, in reality, it is the ultimate sin. This is just a sin on a different level. You sin against man, it's one sin. You sin against God, it's something else. So God, God has rights over his creation. God has a right over marriage. He owns this thing. And he's got the right to say what it should be and what it should not be. Now listen, maybe that's not a hotbed category for you. Maybe there's other categories in your life that, that are difficult categories for you. Maybe you feel like you have certain rights to a healthy body. And your body begins to deteriorate. Your body uh, uh, has some disease in it. And God doesn't turn around and fix that thing on the time frame that you had hoped that he would. And, and you want to argue your rights. God... What are you doing, God? Where's, where's your faithfulness, God? What, why would you even let this happen? Tragedies occur in our lives. Financial misfortune happens in our lives. And we want to sort of take God to court over that. Why? Because we feel like we've got rights. I've got the right to have this much money, and I only have this much. I've got the right for it to be better than it is right now. And see, in every one of those settings, we have forgotten that all things exist for God. And for his glory. And God gets glory through things dying. 
God gets glory in the midst of suffering. So he chooses not to do away with that right now. God gets glory through people taking delight in him, whether they make tons of money or make little money. God gets glory through that. So there's, there's this principle operating in God that the church can never walk away from. God does things for God's reasons. Right? Remember this, this scene? We looked at this scene, Revelation chapter 4. I don't remember what we were doing. Actually, earlier in Malachi, I believe. The scene of the throne room of God. You know, and I said we kind of joined this program continually in progress. This is the scene, if you had visited the throne room 2,000 years ago, if you visited it this morning, or if you're into the future, thousands of years from now, and you're visiting the throne room, you're going to bump into this scene, Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And a little while later, look down in verse 8. He comes and he gets insight into the throne room, and it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes. Remember, these are the same creatures Isaiah saw. Full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say. And by the way, they never get tired of saying it either. They never get bored with their proclamation. Because they've taken in God in a way that it's, it's overwhelming to them. This is the response of drinking in God, and yet they drink in more, and they respond again. And it's an eternal exchange that never goes away. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Right? Do you see, in the end here, this is, this is the final address of all that God has created. You and I aren't, aren't out there somewhere, uh, you know, checking in with God, getting an email update on the greatness of God somewhere. At some point, the consummation of all things that were created by him and for him are going to take in the greatness of God and never get enough of it. And the highest calling of our existence is going to sound something like worthy, worthy, honor, and glory, and praise, and hopefully a better vocabulary is going to come in that moment to fill up an eternity of proclaiming back to God his excellencies. This this is what was in God in the beginning. This is what created all things, and this is where all things are headed. This is why... A church has got to be God-centered. That's that's the thing that defines who we are. John Piper's a little sobering when he says, Today, as in every generation, it is stunning to watch the shift away from God 
as the all-satisfying gift of God's love, right? If God loves you, okay, how do you know God loves you? Hey, come on, I mean, you've got to battle with this question. Somebody bumps into your life, you're having a bad moment, you're having an argument with another Christian that you don't think God loves you. And, and why is that? Because he didn't do this for me. He didn't give me that. He didn't keep that from happening. Right? All that time, what are you overlooking? He gave you himself. He's already done that. The greatest gift, the ultimate gift, the reason for the gospel is so that God could give you himself. That's more than anything that was seeking to be achieved. Yeah, your body's going to get healed one day and you get temporary taste of that healing right now. There's a provision that comes from God. There's favor upon your life where God does orchestrate circumstances to go a certain way, touch your life in a way that's particular and unique rather than other people in the world. All that stuff is true. But that's not the measure of God's love. The measure of God's love is that he broke down the dividing wall through the gospel to give you himself. Now, most of us, when we want to take God to court because we want a refund on our faith, are overlooking that, aren't we? We've got this gazillion dollar gift sitting in our closet, and we're arguing over the $5 thing in our hand. You see this $5 thing, God? There's no way you could love me. No way you could love me because you're withholding that from me. All $5 of it. <laughs> now I realize it feels like it's a lot more valuable than $5 to us. But in light of having God, it's five bucks. He says, it's stunning how seldom God himself is proclaimed as the greatest gift of the gospel. The acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithfulness to the gospel is this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you? Or because at the cross of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever. You know, I know this, is, this is just an awkward reality. It's one that the church has to break through. It's the, it's the worst failure on the church, as far as I'm concerned. Is when God himself becomes the secondary prize, the booby prize, to something else that we really wish that we could have. We wish greatly that what the gospel did was restore to us these particular aspects of a better life for me and God lavishes his love on me by proving that the things in my categories that matter, he shows up in them in effective ways. I don't, I don't read Revelation 4 and go, I get to do that for all eternity, right? And right now, I'm, I know I'm living in your house because I know you don't do it either. You don't pick up Revelation 4 and go, I can't wait. When was the last time you just walked up to somebody else and just went, Revelation 4? <laughs> can't wait, baby. Revelation 4. I mean, we're just not walking around doing that. Get a raise, buy a house, get something new, got healed in your physical body, right? Hey, we're, we're high-fiving and God is great. But to get to stand before God in all of eternity before his throne and drink in the greatness of God, God, the ultimate gift himself, all the enjoyment that there's going to be in that moment, not a feature for us. It's a sad, tragic thing in the church to miss the greatest of all realities. It's kind of like, like telling your kids, hey, kids, we're going to visit your grandparents. And, you know, I can remember visits to my grandparents when I was a kid. It was kind of like, 
How long are we staying? That many days. And you kind of think through, there's nothing to do there. They've got old stuff, and their yard is old, and the neighborhood's old, and there's just nothing there for kids. I mean, what if kids were going to visit your grandparents at Disney World? Yes! Yes! Oh, we are for real. It's kind of like you get to go to heaven. Well, why is that so attractive to you? Well, because there's streets of gold and there's, there's no more body ache and suffering and no more tears and, and the guilty conscience and all those things are going to be done with. Isn't that great? It's going to be heaven. But your grandparents are going to be there. Well, that's cool. That's all right, too. They can come. You know, do they like to ride the rides, too? Do they, do, I mean, that's cool. As long as you can, don't slow me up. I mean, I'm space mountain. I'm this. I'm next. Uh, it's almost like, you know, we, we get to go be with God. And heaven, oh, heaven's like a theme park. Uh, what about if there was, just God was the main thing. He's the main thing. Because when you read the Bible, the Bible is about God. It's about making much of God and what he's like. It's about drawing our attention to who God is. And, and as a matter of fact, if you just tweak God a little bit, if you just change God a little bit, you would change so much about the Bible. Right? We just studied through Malachi. Do you understand if you tweak God a little bit, Malachi doesn't sound like what it sounds like in here. Just change God a little bit. First Peter wouldn't have sounded like what it sounded like as we studied through that. When we get ready to study through the book of Acts, if you just tweak God a little bit, the book of Acts will not sound like it does. If you tweak God a little bit, the gospel changes. It is who God is that makes the gospel have to be what it is, exactly the way it is. Tweak God a little bit, the gospel changes. If you tweak God a little bit, anything about going changes. So it's, it's very important, critical, and vital that you and I are centered on the person of God, that we make much about God, that we come to know God, that the greatest moments of our lives are about what we have taken in in revelation and knowledge about God. This, this, this would be true. As great as that is, let me move to the next one. As great as that is, if I were to every week stand up here and preach to you on the names of God and characteristics of the glory of God, and every week we just, we just talk about mercy this week. We're talking about compassion next week. And we're going to talk about righteousness the week after that. We're going to talk about justice, and, and we're going to talk about holiness the week after that. We'll, El Shaddai and uh, Jehovah Jireh. And we're just, everything that reveals character of God. And every week, for the rest of your time here upon earth, that's what we preach from this pulpit. As great as that is, we would not sound like the Bible. Because God is revealed in the Bible, and the gospel is revealed in the Bible. The gospel talks about man as well as God. It talks about the redemptive purpose of God, and going is talked about in the Bible a lot. So if we're going to sound like the Bible, the book that God created for us to get to know why we exist and where our lives are supposed to be aimed at, we're going to talk about God, and we're going to build, and that's one leg we're going to build on. We're going to build churches and plant churches based on being God-centered. We're going to create and structure and form pivot ministries and youth ministries based on what we believe God is God-centered, and we are called to be God-centered ultimately in our lives. But we are also called to be gospel-centered. Right? So that would be our next category. I'll try and do these too quickly for you. 
This, this gospel threads its way through every page of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. It is weaving. It is that, you know, when you sew something, you got to pull on it, and the whole garment kind of comes together, those of you who've ever sewn. The gospel is that, that thread. It runs through every page of the Bible. It runs through every generation of humanity. There's never been a generation that needed to skip the gospel. There's never been a human being that you will ever talk to in their life that the gospel is not applicable to who they are. It's the thread that runs through everything in our lives. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved But whoever does not believe will be condemned. There's urgency to the gospel. Go into all the world and proclaim. There's there's expansion to the gospel. There's invasiveness to the gospel. For some people, this is an unattractive element, primarily because it doesn't suit either the culture you've lived in or your personality. There's a mandate. Here's the gospel. Go into all the world with it and proclaim it. Right? Invade spaces with the gospel. Be invasive. Expand. The, the church is never defined by the idea that, hey, everybody in? Every, we got, got, okay, I think we're done. Okay, close the door. We're done. Gospel has reached enough. We're done. Does the Bible ever sound that way? Does the Bible ever sound like it doesn't say, go somewhere with the gospel? The gospel is invasive. It is seeking to invade. It's it's invading jungles where people live as tribesmen, totally different cultures with the most bizarre of beliefs. The gospel goes there. The gospel invades modern urban settings where people have figured out how to meet so many of their needs physically, emotionally, financially. The Bible calls us to go into that culture, invade that culture, invade that setting, and proclaim the gospel there as well. The, the Bible calls us to invade the settings of the religious. Whether you're a Muslim, Hindu, whether you grew up in a cultural form of Christianity as a Methodist or a Catholic, in this city, you're, you're invading Catholicism in this city. You go up where these guys are from, you're invading Baptistism and Methodism and other forms. Not, not a ton of Catholics hanging around in Mississippi and Alabama. You're invading a different form of people having some ideas about God, yet having to come in contact with the reality of the gospel. That's in the Bible. Yet religious people in the Bible that the, the gospel penetrated into their culture. It penetrated into their lives. And the first thing it did for many of them who were sincerely religious was offend them to the core. Because they already thought they were right and right with God. And so you, you understand the Bible doesn't present the gospel as though to tell you, listen, if, if people won't feel sort of put off by what you're saying to them, then, then go ahead and present them the gospel. The, the gospel is invasive. It invades people's lives with a message that it's called to invade their lives and tell them about. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself, right? So we go back to being God-centered. Why does the gospel exist? In order to reconcile us to himself, God ultimately is the destination for where the gospel takes us. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Is this sobering or what? The greatest event that God ever did upon the earth was to send his own son in the form of man to to receive in himself the penalty of those who failed to meet God's standard, to crucify him on a cross and raise him from the dead. This act of reconciliation God has entrusted to us. Whether you sit it in the front row or you're all the way in the back or you're in the lobby, we know you're in the lobby, guys. I see you. No matter where you are, no matter where you are in your faith, you've been saved for 30 years. You've been saved for 30 days. This incredible thing that God did, he has entrusted. You are, you are a franchisee of the gospel enterprise. You're called to further the gospel's interests. And stylistically, it's not left up to you. You're called to figure out how God calls his church to do that and to participate in doing that. And you're going to hear it. I mean, church planting, I believe, is at the central of how the church furthers the gospel mission into this world. And so every one of us is going to be called to participate in seeing churches get established, raised up, and taking the gospel into another address, to another set of lives, another location at some point. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Right? This, this is the message of our lives. This is the defining message of our lives. We live in contact with other human beings in order to implore them to be reconciled to God. There's not a relationship in your life that is outside of that compelling, I am here to implore you to come to God, to be open to what this message says and what it will do and what you need to have it do in your life. Every relationship that exists is in our lives as a means through which the gospel can travel. And so this is the second leg, God-centered, gospel-centered. Tripods need three legs. Go-centered. Now, the go-centered one's a little bit more imperative-driven, right? Gospel-centered's a little bit more indicative-driven. It's going to be those statements where the Bible's just telling you this is what's been done. This is what's been done. This is what was done to you. This is what was done for you. This is what was done by Christ. This is what God the Father did. It's just informing you about all kinds of things that you and I could never have done for ourselves that God took upon himself to find reasons in himself to do all that he has done in the gospel for us. And then there is this go component, which sounds much more imperative. It's much more telling you. It's a command. Go. You now. You do this. You do that. You do this. It's a reality point. I think one is hard-pressed. I think these three exist together. 
I think one is hard-pressed to say that they have an understanding of God-centeredness, the understanding of, of the gospel, and that you can't find go in their life. If you can't find go in your life, I would, I would question whether you've really found God and whether you have really believed the gospel. Because I think finding God and who he is and what his passions are like and what his value system is and why the grand scheme of anything existing at all and what the gospel means and what its implications are for every human being, if it doesn't produce go in your life, then I don't really believe you've met God or the gospel. It's like go is like a, like a gauge. It's like a reality gauge. And we, just, we just studied through... Malachi. I'll show you in just a moment. Malachi was, was, a, was a go problem. The reality of their lives. It's like the go gauge. I don't know, maybe it's a go gauge for each of us in heaven. You know, it's kind of like that little thing on your dashboard. You know, where, where's the going like in your life? So, so for Malachi, you know, there was, there was very little going. There was very little concern for how they proclaimed the glory of God throughout the earth. So, you know, knocking on the gauge. Ah, these guys from Malachi. Seems broke. This gauge seems out or something's wrong here. What causes God to step in in that moment? Just wanted to give some further teaching. Now the go gauge was, was low. Their lives stopped proclaiming God. Stopped broadcasting God. Stopped taking the reality of who God is and his gospel into all the earth. Living in such a manner that they were communicating who God is through their lives. They were communicating this message of the gospel through their lives. They stopped doing that. The go gauge was out, and immediately you knew. As we said, we studied through that, right? The problem in that book was they had lost a sense of the greatness of God, right? Well, how did you know that? Look at the way they lived their lives. Their lives don't go anywhere for the glory of God. Right? When we pick up the book of Acts and start reading through Acts, Acts is a go book, isn't it? Right on, the, right on the heels of the gospel revelation of the person and work of Christ is go. Right? And this is an interesting illustration here. Right? It's, a, it's a good theological helper here. Matter of fact, if you guys want to hear a helpful, helpful, helpful message, Peter's message this morning in the school of the word on the perseverance of the saints and on teaching on justification was outstanding. So uh, if you weren't there this morning, pick up a copy of it. Go online, download it, and listen but, but you now here's what here's what happens. You know, maybe I'm still stuck in the Olympics here. So, uh, you watch the men run the relay race. You know, any anybody run the relay race? It's pretty amazing. I mean, if you ever on a any guys ever on a relay team? Let me start there. Ever on a relay team? Right. The number one fear on a relay team was that you're going to grind your spikes into my heel. Right. You now this guy's running, running, running. He's going to hand you this baton. You got your hand back, and you're not looking at him. And there's your leg, just waiting for the guy with the spikes on the end of his shoe just to, you know, lash into your calf. <laughs> uh, so I probably made you run a little faster. But these guys amazingly run around the track, hand the baton. Next guy, hand the baton. You know, that's a good picture of what the church is, right? How, this, this gospel baton came to you. By the grace of God, God ran you down. Now, unlike running and looking to get the, we were just running. We were just running from God. We were not interested. But yet God worked in such a way that he would put the baton of the gospel in our hands. 
He would take this message and run us down with it. He would take his love, his acceptance, his work of forgiveness, his work to reconcile us to himself, and though we were uninterested in moving away from him, God would stir someone's heart who had a go mentality. They had met God, they had received the gospel, and now they're going and they came running after you to put the gospel baton in your hand. But when it got in your hand, there, there is the expectation in the Bible that you're going to now run with it yourself. You're going to take it to the next location. You're going to take it to the next hand. Now, this is where theologically this can get a little bit interesting. Because the gospel comes to you based on what someone else has done. The gospel comes to be received, not to be performed for. The God doesn't run to you and, and ask you for a code word. And, you know, jump up and down 15 times. Can you do 38 push-ups? Okay, here's a baton. It doesn't come to you that way. It comes to you in grace and in mercy. But no sooner, right, you got the baton. Maybe you're here. You just started attending the church. No sooner does the baton get in your hand when people around you start sounding like this. Go, 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 go. They're trying to get you to do something with your life all of a sudden. And they don't use the word go. They, they do stuff like this. They stand up and they say, Read, read, study, pick up, study, pray, pray, serve, outreach, if it invites. Right? This is what it says. Come to covenant group. It sounds like that. Now, if you're not really careful, you're going to take human pressure on you to take the baton of the gospel and go with it, and you're going to pollute the gospel with it. Does that make sense? The gospel came to you free. The gospel came to you just to be received, but once it got in your hands, it started sounding like, do this, do that, do this. Why was it sounding that way? Not to get you to contribute to the gospel, and not as, this would be the most insulting thing for you to do, to think that whatever you do next is going to win you points with God, right? If you started with being God-centered, you already know you're, you're disqualified from ever winning points with God based on your own performance. If you know God, that day is over. If you know the gospel, you know it's not necessary. But when the baton gets in your hands, the church starts sounding like, go! And if the church doesn't sound like that, then the church doesn't sound like the Bible. If pulpits don't sound like these things, then pulpits don't sound like the Bible. Because when I pick the Bible up, I find a lot of shouting. I find people saying, go. I find them saying, go in the way in which you live your life. Go and proclaim. Listen, we don't just proclaim the gospel we stand on a street corner and read a tract to somebody. We proclaim the gospel in the manner of our lives that give way to the words that explain the gospel that's come to us. So you're proclaiming the gospel when you believe certain things, when you practice certain things. That's why the Bible steps in and addresses how you treat one another, what the body of Christ is like, what kind of affection and care do we have one for another. The Bible cares about that because it's part of going. It's not part of the gospel. It's part of going with the gospel, and the Bible is concerned about our going. Now, listen, let me just wrap, wrap this up. You, you can't mess with any one of these and still sound like you're in the Bible. You can't do it. Anytime you and I open up the Bible, which I'm going I'm to close with touching Malachi. I'm just going to touch the end of Malachi here. Anytime I pick up the Bible 
at some moment, to differing levels, these things are being emphasized. God is being emphasized. The gospel is being emphasized. Going is being emphasized. So churches that we would plant, ministries that we would structure, these three things are always going to be informing what those ministries are. God and who he is, the gospel and what it is, and going, the mission of every Christian in every church. Right Now Malachi chapter 4, and I'll close with this thought. You pick up Malachi chapter 4 and you just start reading. You can do this in any passage. And I read in verse 1. For behold, the day is, is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers evil will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. <clears throat> Do you see God in that passage? You just learn something about God in that passage. You just learn what God is like when it comes to sin and how he relates to sin. You just learn that God doesn't close his eyes and say, well, hope for a better day tomorrow. Listen, we're just going to ignore that. We'll just sweep it under the carpet. You just found out that there is a God who his response to sin is that he's going to burn it all up one day. He's going to bring judgment upon sin Sin that has infected humanity. That's who God is in the Bible. And you just learn something about him. It may not have been your favorite thing to read that that's, God's capable of that. God would actually do that. Yet you just learn something about the gospel as well, right? Because ultimately, you know, people think they're being saved from all kinds of things, and they are. But this is ultimately what someone's being saved from. R.C. Sproul wrote a book a number of years ago, Saved from What? Some people are surprised. I mean, well, we're saved from, we're saved from our sins and all the ways in which we as human beings just destroy ourselves and, and make life on this planet so horrible. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's secondary, but it's true. It's a great thing, too. But some people stop there because they're not God-centered. They're man-centered. And so they look at the gospel and they say, okay, how does, how does the gospel help man? The gospel is designed to help man, so you're going to find answers there when you do that. But don't separate God out of these passages. Because according to the Bible, the gospel saves you from God. Wow, that sounds weird. It doesn't if you know who God is. You know he's righteous and pure and just, and he will consume sin with his personage. He's going to destroy sin. And so the gospel creates an urgency that it's not just a matter of, hey, would you like your life on earth to be better? It can be better. The gospel can make your life on earth better. Nah, nah, I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. Thanks. I've got a lot of money on my third wife. I'm cool. You know, she's working out all right. I'll yeah, get rid of her, get another one. So, you know, so, hey, thanks for the offer. That sounds like it's working for you. I'm so glad. That's a little bit different then. No, no, dude, you don't understand the most horrible rock in the universe is about to fall on your head. And you may have it together all you think, but it's unavoidably going to crush you under judgments. And you have to be saved from that. That's in this passage. That's the gospel. Right? You keep reading. And the gospel gets interesting here. Verse 2. But for you, as opposed to for those who are going to get 
fallen upon by this judgment and fire. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Do you see God in that passage? Do you see a God of mercy and kindness and compassion and care who takes a people and lavishes upon them? He says, now listen, there's this horrible judgment that's coming, but you, you know, can you get in... Little animals kicking out from the stall, full of joy, just released into life. That's going to be you. Well, wait a minute. The same God? Yeah, the same God who will bestow upon you joy and mercy is going to bestow upon others just wrath and punishment. You just discovered God in these passages. And you discovered the gospel as well because how does one explain this group versus that group? How can there be these two groups in here? Because God provided a substitute. That wrath and that judgment didn't go away. It was diverted unto another. It was diverted unto a lamb of God who received all of that horrible judgment on himself so that this group would receive none of it. Do you understand why this book starts off being greatly offended in the beginning when the people of God bring these lame lambs before God? It's because they don't get the gospel. The lamb being brought needed to be without blemish and acceptable to God because that's who his son was going to be before him. So you see the gospel in God complaining about the way in which they proclaimed his excellence by bringing these worthless lambs. You don't get it, do you? A worthless lamb, a lame lamb could never stand before me and receive my judgment. It would have to be a perfect spotless lamb, and it will be my own son. That's God. That's the gospel. And this whole book of Malachi, it is taken up with going, right? You remember chapter 1? Chapter 1 unfolds. Why are we even hearing any of this stuff, God? Chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. But you, you have profaned it. You have silenced my greatness. You have doused my greatness with something else. And so God says, the go gauge says, you're not going. You're not proclaiming me. So God shows up to correct their understanding of God and the gospel and then to send them out once again. All right, do you understand these, these three legs define the church? It defines our mission. It's why we do what we do. It's why we'll plant churches. It's why we will form ministries to pivot age people and, and form youth because we want them to see God. We want them to see the gospel. We want their lives to be going for the glory of God. Let's, let's stand up together. Father, thank you for ears to... Listen to words 
Lord, what we ultimately need is hearts to absorb and be affected by these words. And so, Lord, we pray right now, even as we pause to digest these thoughts, your spirit would give ears to our hearts, God, to hear why these things matter the most, why they're on every page of the Bible. It's other stuff that matters to us. It's not on every page of the Bible, but these things, they're on every page. They're critical and essential to who you've called us to be. And so, Lord, right now, by the Spirit, would you, would you bring reality to the style of person we have become in your church? How are we approaching these things? Lord, if we, if we look at our lives and we look at what we believe, Lord, where are we in relation to these things? Would you just let the Holy Spirit use your name, find your address, bring his thoughts to your thoughts. Listen, I wonder if you were here this morning and you answered honestly from your life, would you say that your life is God-centered? That you live your life in a manner that reflects, I exist for the praise and glory of God. God sits at the center. He and His cause is what dominates my life. If I were to ask you what life message most defines who you are, would you say the gospel most defines who I am, what I'm about, why I do the things I do, why I live the way I live, why I'm around who I'm around, what value system I have? Would you say the gospel is your defining story in your life. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're being honest and you're saying, you know, I don't, I don't think the gospel is my life story. I don't think that's the message I'm trying to convey to others. And I don't know that I could say that my life is centered on God and who God is. Listen, maybe this is the morning God wants to reconcile you to himself. Maybe God has brought you here this morning for you to realize your life is out of bounds and God wants to bring you to himself this morning. God wants to say, come to me. Come to me. Let me be all that you need in this life for all eternity. Let me be the object of your life. Let me be that. And the way through which you can be that is the gospel. The story of my son sent on your behalf to remove every bit of punishment that stands between you and me. And you can be forgiven completely and restored to me. Listen, if you're here this morning, and this morning God is saying, come be restored to me. Come be restored. And you're hearing God say that right now, and you want that. I want to ask you just to step out from where you are and come forward. I'm going to have somebody come and pray with you right now. It's a huge moment in a person's life for you to be able to say, that's, that's where I'm at. I need to be restored to God, and I want to do that this morning. Anybody else? This morning, God in his mercy is about to pull you from one set of people, one place of existence, and he's going to give you the ultimate gift. 
whatever it was that you thought you've needed so far in life, this morning God wants to peel back the veil and tell you what you've been needing is me. You've been needing me in your life, filling your heart, filling your days, reminding you every day, I created you for me. You exist for me. Anybody else this morning, I just need, I need to come home to God. I need to be reconciled to God. Anybody else? for these guys in just a moment. If you feel led to come forward, then please do. But let me lean on those of you who would say, no, I I think I know I've been reconciled to God and the gospel is my message. Can I tap on your go gauge for a moment? How you doing? The baton is in your hand. The throngs of heaven are standing around and they're yelling, go, go. place where you see, yes, my life is going. Not perfect by any means, but my life is going. Church, if that's not the declaration of your life this morning, God, I think God wants to make some huge adjustments to the gauge. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for pulling back the veil and introducing us to who you really are. Great God of glory. God whom our hearts long, long to encounter and experience. God, ultimately we're desperate for you. God, thank you for this gospel. This defining message of our lives, defining what we've needed and defining why we're still here and what we are participating in. God, the only conclusion we could have, having met a God like you, having received a gospel like this, is that we would go into all the world, that we would live lives that scream, we are on a mission. My life is on a mission. I live at the address that I live at. I'm married to the person that I'm married to. I'm relating to people in my life. I'm engaged in the church the way I am because I'm going in order to proclaim this gospel and declare reconciliation to this God. Oh, Lord, that's who you've called us to be as a church. Lord, from the front row to the back, Lord, that's who you've called us to be. These define us, Lord. These three legs we stand on. It's the future of who we are. Everything we're about, God, whether it's children's ministry, ministry to couples, ministry to singles, outreach, alpha, Lord, whatever it is, these three legs define who you've made us to be as a church. God, may our hearts be overwhelmed with this God, be affected by this gospel. May our feet be swift, Lord, to run the race, passing this baton of the gospel to the next one and to the next one, and to the next one. 
for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Hey, guys, a, a quick, uh, quick alpha reminder.